0: Welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Food Webs. Hello, welcome, or welcome back. We are the Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Nick. Hello. And I am Naomi. Would one of you care to introduce any new listeners to who we are?
1: I can, Naomi. We're the natural selection. We're a group of taxonomists who love bringing our passion for nature into the wild. That's your phone or computer. Or your radio, I don't know. Each week we gather and wax lyrical about the natural world. In the first section of our podcast, we talk about nature news and some cool research we've found in the past week. In the second section, we talk about a different theme and how it relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is food webs.
0: Thank you for that, Nick. How are you guys doing this week? Have you had any
2: exciting nature interactions or encounters this week? Yes, I did. I was on a date. Here's a bit of romance advice, which we don't often give on this show. But apparently, if you're on a date with someone, it's not advisable to mention how interesting the beetles surrounding their balcony is.
1: Oh, what? <laughs> Nick, you're going on the dates with the wrong people.
0: <laughs> I was just about to say, I was like, they don't sound like they're for you if they don't like
2: beetles.
1: I'd be excited just, you know, to have that pointed out to me.
2: But sadly, I'm from a place where these beetles don't exist, and she is not. So... I don't know the equivalent it would be, Naomi or Nick, but it would be like going on a date with you and pointing out a pigeon, I guess. I mean, it wouldn't imply that, yeah, you might think, well, is is my conversation that interested that he's more interested in the pigeons?
1: Hmm. I need to radically rethink my entire date approach. <laughs> Pretty much all I am doing is, look at that pigeon over there. How weird.
2: But, uh, interestingly, I did look them up. I asked her to tell me what their name was so I could look them up when I got home. And, uh, and then Melathinae, uh, they're a subfamily of scarab beetles. Um, oh, and she was quite happy. She's on the fourth floor and they were just hovering next to her balcony. So.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's, um,
2: yeah. Very interesting behavior and quite interesting looking
1: beetles if you see them. I think on the podcast last week, I said that I, I always have this thing where, like, I forget. I forget to think about the nature interactions and then the podcast comes around and and we ask and it's like, oh man, I I can't remember anything. This week, I stuck it in my brain. I had an animal interaction and I thought, this is going to the podcast. So I was in the park sitting on a bench with a friend and my friend and I were eating some almonds and before I could really, you know, before I knew what was going on, um, my friend had taken one of the almonds and was... Giving it, put it on the ground near uh, one of those Eurasian squirrels, the red ones. And you know, I I don't love feeding wildlife, you know, but it was it happened so fast, then it was done. And then for the next 20 minutes, that squirrel got more and more and more fearless, to the point where it was we were on this park bench, and it would leap up onto the back of the park bench and run behind us, and like back and forth like a little tightrope looking for more food. And at one point, it ran around the front. And at this point, there were several people watching the whole situation. And it came up to my foot, and it touched my foot. Like, please, sir, can I have some more? And it was very intense. It was very intense. In the end, it left. We didn't give it any more. It was very persistent.
0: Oh, my goodness. That's so intense. Yeah, one of several reasons why feeding wildlife is is not advisable I guess. I'm trying to think, I was the same as you. I kind of, I always try and look out for, or, or try to focus on my interactions as I'm walking through the park or going about my day. One that stood out to me was I was walking and I saw a blackbird and it had a, a worm in its beak. And as it saw me, it like flew very speedily away. So I suspect it was feeding its young, but it did not want me to steal the worm. With that guys, I think that does mean we should get started with the news. I'm actually going to kick us off this week. It's a very exciting piece of news. A skull has been found from China, and it's believed to be an ancient human skull. It was found dates from about 146,000 years ago, and they think it might actually be a new human species, which is really cool. From a group of researchers from Hebei Geo University, and they described the skull in a paper, that was published in the journal, The Animation. So I believe the skull was actually found quite a while ago, in the 30s. And it's been kind of dubbed the Dragon Man or Homo Longi. And I think it was named after the Dragon River or the Longjiang in the province where it was found. So there's some pretty cool features about it that they found. It's a very large skull. It's actually a really well-preserved skull as well. So they think that it might be kind of a sister group to Homo sapiens. And they think that it has like a very large brain capacity and it could have been kind of within the range of modern humans and Neanderthals. So they think it might have kind of been a sister group to Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. So it has some features that resemble our species. So flat and low cheekbones, shallow canine fossa, 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 and the Face looks reduced and tucked under the brain case. So this is a really cool piece of news, I thought.
2: Potentially a new species of humans has been discovered. I thought I'd take my news off the land, guys, this week. I've gone to the ocean. And reading scientific papers about the ocean made me realise how little I understand about the ocean. (laughs) Turns out they've got some words that we don't use. But it's fine, because it was about animals which I do vaguely understand. So this was looking at some gray reef sharks. It was called sharks surf the slope. So current updrafts reduce energy expenditure for aggregating marine predators. So what they found is, as you guys know, even even Nick, who is, is really not an ocean person, the ocean has currents. And these currents go in different directions and sort of, yeah, will affect the sea in different ways. And what they found is that these sharks would behave rather strangely around these currents. So what they would sometimes do is when the when the current was going one way, they would sort of sit in it and just be very, very still and let the current sort of blast past them, if you will. Other times what they would do is they would sort of aggregate together. You know how like the cyclists in Tour de France, know, this is a good analogy, you know how the cyclists, they take turns going at the front? Yeah, so what they would do is they'd be like a pack and they would take in turns going to the front and then letting the, the current push them back to the back of the pack. And what they found is, as you guys have probably heard, you often hear that sharks have to continuously move to get oxygen in their, their gills because they have to get water flowing over them. Well, this is a way for them to get water flowing over their gills with minimal movement. It can also act as a way for them to travel with minimal movement depending on which way they're going. Uh, and this was sort of, they made the analogy to birds following updrafts from buildings. So if we can start to understand these currents, we might be able to understand fish behavior or fish travel. And this was saying that, yeah, uh, understanding how they use these currents could be really, really important
1: in conservation in the future. Cool. I didn't realize. I mean, I guess it makes sense that there's like sailable. You hear about the turtles on this, the stream. Thing, you know, I'm not an ocean person, like you said. I didn't know sharks do that. It's cool. Yeah. So with my news this week, I'm going to go back to something I've used to, used to do in the past and haven't done in a while, which is the off of the news section with a grim... Piece about extinction, but this one has a little bit of hope in it. So that was a study that was published in PNAS this week, looking at the extinction rates of mammals in Australia, and basically trying to do a new a new way of studying historically, which is really tough to do when you don't have records of um, species that existed at a certain time in in a certain place. But there's a proxy for that data. We can use the specimens in natural history collections as a marker by testing basically their entire genome for genetic diversity within the population that exists in the museum now as a proxy for the genetic diversity that existed in the population at that time. So we can get a sense of how diverse a species was in the past versus how diverse it is now. And that's what this group was doing in with these Australian mammals. Australia has one has the highest historically recorded rate of mammalian extinction in the world for the time since records have been kept of extinctions, with 34 land species declared extinct since 1788 when Europe colonized Australia. Among that number, 41% of those are rodents, native rodents of Australia, that have gone extinct. It's, they've, it's hugely devastating, the rodents. And they wanted to do a bit of closer look here using museum specimens that were up to about 200 years old. So almost as old as this European colonization, just after. They found out that the genetic diversity of species that went extinct during the 19th and 20th centuries was really high, just before the European colonization. And that these sort of genetic traits, the markers that they were able to figure out based on taking the whole genetic sequence, showed that immediately after colonization, genetic diversity declined massively. In most rodents across Australia. So this sort of shows that genetic diversity isn't necessarily insurance against a catastrophic extinction event, especially something as dire as European colonization of Australia, which has been pretty intense ecologically. But basically that this extinction rate was higher for larger bodied rodents for bigger animals, which is something that seems to be true across time, but it varied among biomes. At the same time, it's cool that they have this new way of measuring historic genetic diversity, but they also taxonomically resurrected a species that was thought extinct, Gould's Mouse, which still survives today on an island in Shark Bay in Western Australia.
0: That's pretty cool. I thought you were going to leave us with like mostly sad news, but there was a little bit of happy, happy news at the end, a new way of looking at things, perhaps a new tool, researchers or researchers using a tool that... To, to look at things in a new way. And also a new discovery of a species or a discovery of an old species, I guess?
1: They don't say this, but I think it either reduces the number of extinctions in Australia since seventeen eighty eight to thirty three, or they've already counted it in and it should be it was thirty five and now it's thirty four. Oh, okay. They've unextincted something.
0: Great. Well on that note, that does bring us to the end of our news this week. Please join us after this short break we will be back with our theme, which this week is food webs. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. We are back with our theme. This week, we're talking about food webs. And I think, Nick, will you tell us
2: a little bit about why food webs are important? Why are we talking about this this week? It's quite a complicated topic. I think you guys will agree By its very nature, it's studying interactions between things on a grand scale because we're not just looking at food chains, which is the sort of first thing we're taught with the one to another to another. A web is this complex interaction by definition. So why is it important for us humans to sort of understand these? Well, whether we like it or not, we're part of this world. So we better start acting like. Actions we take will have impact on these food webs and if they are complicated it's important to understand what might happen but you're thinking what actions are we taking surely we could just not take these actions well one really interesting example is mosquitoes so malaria absolutely devastating disease it's theorized it's killed more people on planet earth than anything else in recorded history and and to this day continues to kill thousands and thousands of children every year So we sort of think of how intense coronavirus is. But yeah, uh, dying from malaria is a reality for a lot of people every year around the world. And it's just exceptionally common. So one way to battle this is to get rid of the vectors, to get rid of the mosquitoes. And there are a lot of communities which are sort of doing this. where Rather than sort of coming up with a drug to prevent malaria, they're coming up with methods to eradicate mosquitoes from the ecosystem. But what effect would this have? Because while mosquitoes bite us, they are existing. They're not in isolation. If we get rid of them, what impacts would this have? So there are people who would study the impacts on food webs. So, for example, the larvae of mosquitoes, they, they breed in stagnant water. So their larvae will be eaten by fish quite often. Or dragonflies as well will often eat mosquito larvae. So if we remove them, would there be another insect that could fill this niche and provide food? for these other species. Also, interestingly, they're pollinators. We think of mosquitoes as drinking blood, but that's actually only the females. The males eat nectar and will pollinate plants. So if we remove them from this system, is there another insect that could step in and act as a pollinator for perhaps important plants in the region? It's all about studying in this case an insect's role in this food web to understand that if we removed it, what impact would it have? Because removing it potentially could have a really positive impact on the lives of millions of people so it's important to understand that but it's not just things like malaria is a very good way of looking at why we might mess with food webs we also eat we eat a lot generally as humans so understanding the food we eat and their place in the food web can be quite important so not too long ago there was a study on how the marine fish food web is globally connected so the ocean food web is globally wide it's None of it is really isolated, which is quite staggering to think about. We rely on so much food from oceans that understanding all these interactions could actually give us food security. And we can understand where, where maybe there is a bit more give and maybe there is less give on, on food pressures. So we can continue to sort of get food from those oceans for people. Yeah, those are just a couple of examples of why it's important to understand food webs. But generally it's because, yeah, human beings have a habit of interrupting them. So it's a, it's a good idea to understand what effects
1: that will have. There are some, there's a lot of stuff in there, Nick, that, I mean, I guess food webs are the whole point is they're complex and they touch on a lot of different, you've made your point and you've also introduced to me a lot of information, not about food webs that I didn't know before. So cool. Thanks.
0: Yeah, cool. I think you made a great point at the very beginning that ecology is very complicated. A particular food webs can be extremely complicated and I will give you guys, listeners, a peek behind the curtain that I did suggest this theme this week, and I may or may not have regretted it slightly, forgetting how difficult I find ecology. It's so fascinating, but the terminology is so dense, and I it's so it <laughs> everything overlinks, and you read one paper, and one person says one thing, and you read it, and someone else says something that's the exact opposite. So I thought I'd go back to an early experiment and an early concept in ecology, something that I found easy enough to get my head around. And I wanted to talk about keystone species in food webs. So in order to discuss this, like I said, I'll go back kind of to when this concept was first discovered or first talked about. So this was created by an ecologist, Dr. Robert Payne. And at the time, a kind of an idea that ecologists were looking at was why is the world so green? Why is there so many green things? Like, why aren't there just insects and herbivores just eating everything? What's, what's controlling the populations? Like, what's stopping these numbers? And, and some of the ideas were maybe that it was these physical constraints such as weather, temperature, different things like that where were controlling it. Another idea is maybe it's a, a bottom up control. But around this time in the 1960s, a couple of researchers had this idea that maybe there's a, a top-down control. And in that, they were looking at predators controlling numbers and predators controlling herbivore numbers, which in turn controls lower trophic levels. So in particular, what I wanted to look at now was predators controlling numbers, but also kind of maybe some slightly more indirect interactions or indirect effects that predators can have. So I want to look at this particular experiment that was done by Payne in 1963. What he did was he found a coastal area that had lots of starfish, lots of limpets, different types of mollusks, different algae and things growing. And one of the articles I read about it actually was called The Ecologist That Threw Starfish. And what he did was he excluded the starfish from certain patches of the, these rocks and this kind of rocky seashore. And so this acted as kind of a predator exclusion. This was kind of monitored over the next two years. And so when he excluded the predators in this area before, there was lots of different types of mollusks, lots of different algae. So there was chitons, barnacles, mussels, lots of different things like that. What did you guys think? would have happened when he got, and and just so you know, the starfish do eat these mollusks, they're predators of these mollusks. What happened, do you think, happened to the numbers and the diversity of these species when he excluded the starfish?
1: The most straightforward thing would be that the mollusks multiplied. But there were lots of them.
0: Yeah, you think, right? But what actually happened was the diversity went down. So initially in these patches of areas that had starfish, there was 15 species observed. But in the areas that didn't have these starfish or the, where the starfish had been excluded, it went down to eight. So what was kind of happening was the composition was changing because when the predator wasn't kind of controlling the numbers of different, of the different mollusks, some of the mollusks were taking over, and it kind of happened in sort of a step-wise approach, I think, so basically at first the acorn barnacle kind of jumped in at first when the pisaster, the starfish species, was removed, and then, what, a couple of months later, the California mussel kind of overran the barnacle, and then that was kind of only some algae growing on the mussels, and then It was interesting because these algae were affected, even though they weren't eaten by the starfish. So I thought this was a really cool interaction. And and his work really developed this concept of the keystone species, which really influences like lots of areas of ecology today. And not just so at the time, he kind of thought of it as this top predator was the keystone species. But now it's kind of realized that lots of other types of species can be this keystone and basically it means that they have this really large impact on an ecosystem another example is, say say forest elephants even though they're not the top predator they have a big impact on the ecosystem that they inhabit so i thought this was an interesting idea in ecology and kind of a a cool way to look at things and maybe not what you would expect from this interaction
1: It definitely fits in with the idea that we're taught, that I was taught in in high school, at least, that was like keystone species are important, but for a different reason. I think it was this sort of idea of like, they're the peak, the apex, they're like, they have a lot of control and impact, which are such like passe things to like be important for. But the idea that, that by sort of limiting one species that can sort of dominate a competitive range of diverse species that then allows the others to flourish is really that's really cool
0: you think that everything would do better when you get rid of this predator but actually things ended up doing worse so it kind of
2: it's an interesting it's an interesting concept all right on an entirely unrelated note
1: do you know what a keystone is it's the last piece of a arch that you put in
2: yeah and if you take it away the arch falls down there you go That's why they're called keystone species.
1: Mm -hmm. In case anyone was wondering, he can do etymology and entomology.
2: (laughs) (laughs) i sorry, might have listeners not from England, so wondering why we're calling it keystone species.
0: So, Nick, I think you're going to talk a little bit about how maybe sometimes apex predators can get reintroduced back into the food web.
1: So yeah, I was thinking, you know, I I also was a bit like hmm, food webs complicated, Whew, you know, and we only do easy stuff here on the podcast. No, no, no. This week I wanted to do something a little bit different with food webs, and I was thinking about, you know, a food web implies that everything's connected, and and we're connected to it too. We're part of the the natural ecosystem, and but it's really hidden in most of our, in the, at least in Western society, the the passage back into the food web is is not something that we talk about or look at much. So I wanted to just look at where it can happen and where humans re-enter the food web, if you will. I know we eat a lot, but we also get eaten. And so I looked at sort of the the range of animals that hunt and eat humans for food regularly, not just a, a sort of a, a chance attacks or encounters in the wild, but and I found what ended up I if you know if we're taxonomists here too. So I split it into three categories. The expected, the rare, but makes sense, and the unexpected. So to start with, well, I have a quick question for you guys. What might happen if the population of capybaras decreases in its home regions in South America? Will all cry? You will, if you live in South America, because it's the main food source for jaguars. And when they can't get their capybaras, they'll attack and eat humans. So that introduces us to our first topic, lions, tigers, and other felids, which lions and tigers, they're the well-known, uh, tigers especially, are the well-known, we'll call, I'll call them man-eaters, but really I should say the human-eaters, but it sounds a little less uh, intense, which will be fun later when we get to the unexpected group of man-eaters. So we've got lions and tigers. Leopards, jaguars, and cougars are sort of the second tier of the felids. They don't do too much regular human hunting, but they've been known to attack any people. Then there's the classics, the bears. I don't really, really need to talk about the bears. I think they do their own talking. They are, they're pretty good at killing and eating people. Uh, they don't do it for sport. Um, you know, no animal does, but they do do it for, um, when they're very hungry. And, but not all the time. Especially starving polar bears will, will hunt humans long distances. But other bears, usually it's opportunistic. So then let's move on to the cannons. Uh, we've got wolves, which actually, compared to the other, the bears and the felids, they don't do too much killing and eating of people, but wolves, individual and in packs, have been known to do so. However, the other canids, I found it's actually, they're super low. Dingoes, in, there's only two reported fatalities from dingoes, ever. One of them, it just became viral, so dingoes have this sort of reputation for being human eaters, but, um, only two. And both young. I think one, a, a young teenager and the other a child. Dogs rarely attack and eat people. Sometimes packs of feral dogs will attack people and sometimes kill them, but they usually won't eat the body afterwards. That's not what they're usually killing people for. It's either a fear or a pack thing, but not for food. Coyotes similarly sometimes attack humans for food, but usually the success aren't, the attacks aren't successful. Uh, so you can usually scare them off. Uh, and in some cases where the attacks are more violent and people do start to get eaten by them, it's been that they're sort of hybridized with wolves. So there's it's kind of creepy, but there you go. Moving on from the mammals, there's some other cool animals that eat humans. Crocodiles, for example, hundreds of deaths per year. They're the main ones, the Nile crocodile and saltwater crocodiles. But interestingly, alligators, even though they definitely could, don't usually attack any people. It's the crocodiles that do it. And sharks, I mean, we could do a whole episode on sharks, but it's very, very rare for shark attacks to kill people or for sharks to eat people in general. Usually they're opportunistic, they'll take a bite, and they don't really like to eat humans. Usually what happens when people do die from shark attacks is they die from blood loss from the bites. And I think, for example, in 2018, there were only four deaths from shark bites worldwide. So not something very common. That brings us to the end of the expected group, which I'm glad we did the roundup. But let's get into the rare, but makes sense. So rare meaning even less than what we've just talked about. Sharks at four deaths a year. This is less than that. So a very limited number of confirmed cases of snakes eating adult, non-intoxicated people showed up in my research. They more frequently eat intoxicated adults because they can't fight back, I guess. But I don't know how the snakes can figure that out, or if it's just chance. But they do eat children more frequently. Hyenas, surprisingly, even though they definitely could, both individually and in packs, eat and kill people, don't. They're willing to avoid people. And the one that I really enjoyed, the Komodo dragon, doesn't often kill people. When it does, it's usually not recorded because they're so remote. Not so much data there. Finally, piranhas, very rare, usually young or intoxicated. The last group, there are two that I want to mention in the unexpected. Pigs showed up. I know. So in the research that I have, I'll just quote directly. Although not true carnivores, pigs are competent predators and can kill and eat helpless humans unable to escape them. Horrifying. Secondly and finally, rats. Despite small individual size, rats in large numbers can kill helpless people by eating them alive. Large size rats, some as big as a small cat, have been seen feeding upon human corpses in mortuaries in India. And finally, I want to say we've talked about all these big animals, but of course, the most common ways that we re-enter the food chain is through bacteria, archaea, and fungi, and worms. So there's a lot of ways that we get back into the food chain there, but into the food web. So I had a good time doing this research this week.
0: That was really fascinating. The last two, well, before the worms and bacteria, that that really got me. The rats in particular <laughs> did not enjoy that one. <laughs> Yes. The, the pigs is all well reminded me of the movie Snatch. Snatch? Yeah, I they like feed uh, the dead bodies to the pigs because they're only yeah, boys. Yeah, never They'll trust a man
2: that keeps pigs. Oh. Oh. I remember once watching a documentary about there's a species of ants which eat flesh and there's recording people of like drunk people falling asleep and uh, the ants just eating them.
1: Wow.
0: So thanks, Nick. We got a. An interesting roundup of some animals perhaps maybe we should avoid. Some animals that we should at least have a respectful wariness of. And predators often get a bad rap in places. Often people try to get rid of predators. But this can have bad effects on the ecosystem. And maybe sometimes predators are important in areas?
2: Yeah, so... One human being's response to predators that might threaten their life is historically to hunt and kill them. This happened with tigers in India and it's happening ongoing in lions um, in Africa. And it happened in the United States of America where basically they hunted uh, and eradicated grey wolves from Yellowstone National Park. I believe it was in the in the 20s. And for 70 years, Yellowstone National Park was without grey wolves. But in nineteen ninety five there was a decision made to reintroduce grey wolves and i think twenty four were released I think I'm not positive on that, but a small number were released it wasn't a it wasn't a lot and this introduction of grey wolves had some incredible effects, including an increase in the number of songbirds huh? yeah. Which is not something you'd expect wolves to do. So this just goes to show how incredible food webs are and the interactions they have. Part of the problem in Yellowstone was there was an overabundance of deer and that these deer had no predators and no fear of predators. So they weren't worried about anything. So they were just grazing and grazing and grazing and grazing. And they were grazing through all the vegetation and including new growth. So any trees that might grow, deer would come along and eat the new growth and there'd be no new trees. Now, what the wolves did, not only did they predate on the deer, but they had an impact of fear. So there were places that the deers were afraid to go, particularly valleys, because in valleys, it was much harder to escape from wolf attacks. So they would just avoid them, which meant that the vegetation would start to grow a lot more readily. So what impacts might this have? Well, it turns out a huge amount. Firstly, beavers returned because with vegetations in the valleys, which are next to the rivers, all of a sudden beavers have food. If beavers have food, they can build dams which create environments for other animals. So they create environments where otters could live and ducks could thrive. So there is an increase in ducks. Wolves didn't just have a, an effect on, on prey. There's also something called mesopredators, which is sort of predators which are not the apex predator, but the one below. So wolves would often kill coyotes, which up until that point didn't have any competition. And without coyotes, which were mainly eating rabbits, the rabbit numbers got much, much larger. And what this meant is that birds of prey returned. So you had things like bald eagles coming back, which were nesting. So from the introduction of wolves, you got bald eagles returning, which is an unexpected consequence. It also meant that there was much more trees growing, which is what led to the songbirds with especially willow uh, with this environment. It meant that, yeah, there, there was places for songbirds to nest. So all of a sudden, yeah, the, the, the air of Yellowstone was a lot more noisy with birds happily singing away in their brand new trees. There was also an increase in bear numbers because bears would happily eat the leftovers of wolf hunts. So these bear numbers increased, which then again had an impact on the deer because they would happily hunt them as well. So there was a reduction in deer from there as well, which helped uh, propagate these effects. And amazingly, it changed the way the rivers flowed. And this is because the forests were regrowing. With the forest regrowing, the soil was much less prone to erosion. So the rivers meandered less, the rivers got thinner, and the, yeah, their their courses were would change but were more steady, which again created environments for new animals. So just by reintroducing wolves, you had this absolute cascade effect, and it was called a trophic cascade, where you add something to the top, and it will have an impact all the way down to songbirds.
1: Wow, it's like a symphony.
2: Yeah. Genuinely beautiful. Yeah, that is so, so cool.
0: The tangled webs, they really are fascinating.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess the most important thing of this trophic cascade is that by reintroducing a predator, you can actually increase the amount of biomass in that food web. So there's actually been an increase in biomass, which is, yeah, amazing.
0: Wow, so fascinating. Webs are really intricate and for one of my topics, I was really hoping to come up with kind of the ideas of what happens when you remove predators or when interactions get taken out of a system and kind of what cascades that causes as well. But fortunately, with my confusion about ecology, I I struggled to get something together that would be enjoyable to listen to and not just me rambling confused for a little while. My next section, again, kind of a predator heavy episode, I think, but I wanted to talk about some kind of fascinating, and kind of maybe in the similar way to what Nick is talking about, some really fascinating interactions, or maybe unexpected effects that different food webs and different interactions can have. And I in particular wanted to talk about this piece of work that was published in Nature in 2005, so quite a while ago now, published by Knight et al. And it was looking at fish as a predator. And it was looking at The kind of the interactions and how two different ecosystems can be impacted, because not only are there these certain animals in ecosystem, but some animals actually can inhabit two different ecosystems depending on their life cycle. So in this case, it was looking at dragonfly larvae and then looking at dragonflies as adults and as the nymphs they live in ponds, and as adults they live in a terrestrial ecosystem, and What it found was, looking at this research, they had ponds with fish, and the ponds that had had fish in them, the fish predated on the, the dragonfly nymphs, and therefore it affected the numbers of nymphs and then the numbers of dragonfly that were produced. Not only did it affect the numbers, it also kind of affected the sizes of dragonfly and then what they could predate on. And dragonfly typically predate are, have been known to predate on bumblebees, bees, different pollinators. So what this effect had was that when the there was less dragonfly, there was more pollinators and there was more plaids around because there was more pollinators to, to pollinate them. So this was a cool piece of work that looked at indirect effects and indirect interactions that things can have so it's really fascinating and it's so hard to predict but it's definitely worth studying to kind of understand how one we as humans can impact things and two how something we may not particularly appreciate as as a species or an animal is really actually important and that the ecosystem is so delicate and so precise in how it's, it's balanced.
1: When we talked earlier about ecology being complex and difficult it's one of these things where I'm like, how can you do experiments in ecology? It just blows my mind. But it's cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think as well, it's 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 really impressive how they managed to, I think they they really break down the different interactions and kind of do, at first it seems so simple, but really just like an exclusion of having one pond with a fish and one pond without a fish. And it really shows you kind of these huge, massive kind of interactions and, and there's a huge amount of statistics I think they have to do afterwards, but <laughs> I got it packaged in a nice little abstract, so it was a lot easier for me <laughs> to digest. <laughs> These interactions are extremely complex, and not only are they complex as a whole ecosystem, but they also can be complex on a much smaller scale as well, a much more microscopic scale.
1: Yeah, I, I dove down a little bit into something that I would heard about vaguely before this episode, but I wanted to know more about the food webs that exist um, in the microbiome, and it's something that's pretty a hot topic right now, I think, in popular science literature and in, in biology and ecology and human biology. But this is not about humans. I want to read about termites. So termites are known for many things, I think. But one of the things they're most known for, besides making those super cool mounds that you see, uh, is their ability to digest wood. They can eat your house up in you know just a couple of years. But how do they do that? They're just, you know, little termites, and cellulose is pretty tough. Well, it turns out they break it down with the help of microbes in their hindgut, which work a sort of like our microbes that help us digest things in our own guts. But these termite microbes are particularly well-suited for digesting cellulose and other things the termites eat. More than 200 species of microbes form these mutualistic communities within the termite gut, and produce different types of wood breaking down, enzymes that break down wood. In the same species at different times, in the same species of termite at different times, this termite can have different relationships with its microbiota, which enables it to adapt rapidly to varying food sources throughout the seasons and in different environments, which I think is a pretty cool adaptive response. But not what I wanted to talk about as the primary focus today. Instead, I wanted to talk about a primary symbiont In the hindgut of a species of lower termite called trichonympha, that's the symbiont's name, not the termite's name. So the genus trichonympha, and it's a flagellated protist, which means it's got a little, um, hundreds of little flagella or little tails that help it move around. And where it moves around is exclusively the hindgut of termites. They make up 90% of the termite's hindgut, and it's pretty dense and they do all of the breaking down of the cellulose. And it turns out that this flagellated protist relies itself on a wide diversity of ectosymbionts, or these are bacteria that live on the outside of the membrane of the protist, and help it do different things. The majority of these are different varieties of spirochetes, and what they actually do is attach to the They essentially help develop and move the flagella of the protist. So they're attaching to the external cell membrane of the protist and helping it move around the hindgut of the termite, breaking things down. But that's not all. This protist inside the hindgut of the termite also has dozens of endosymbionts, or internal, microbial helpers inside the cell of the protist that help it do things like fix nitrogen and break down certain types of chemicals that it can't do by its, on its own. So without all these endosymbionts, trichonympha wouldn't be able to break down cellulose, and the termite wouldn't be able to eat wood. And it wouldn't be able to do other things either, like fix nitrogen, which is low in its diet. So and an, an essential element for the building blocks of life. The amazing thing to me is that all of these things happening within the hindgut of the termite seem to be happening... It basically, in isolation, they are all all these species, the tr- Trichonympha and their endo and are vertically co-speciating. So they're essentially the the groups of endosymbionts within Trichonympha are monophyletic. They were introduced once and then evolved and diversified within the that ecosystem or essentially that food web inside the termites gut inside the Flagellated protist that lives in the hind gut. It's like there's just something. It's almost like physics to me, where you can go so wide and big and look at the complexity of like the stars and like galaxies, and see, then be amazed there, or go super, super, super small and look at like quarks and and little strings wobbling around. I'm not a physicist, but you can also look at the global ocean food web, or you can look at the complexity inside of a termite's gut. And they're both almost, it seems like, equally rich. And I don't know, I wanted to end on something that's sort of brought to light. We've talked a lot about predators and a lot about large ecosystems, and it's cool to go small, too. And there's some interesting stuff happening there.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. I think that's something that I hadn't really even occurred to me. It was also a food rep, that kind of small microscopic biota. But it, you know... It is. It's
2: interactions, you know, so cool. I I wonder what would happen if they
1: introduced grey wolves into a termite's gut. <laughs> There's only one way to find out, Nick. And uh, you know, <laughs> someone someone will probably fund you to do that.
0: <laughs> so with that, I think that does bring us to the end of our theme. And therefore, to the end of our episode. Thank you both for sharing your topics with me and the listeners this week. Please do join us again next week, where our theme will be blue. So until then, from all of us here at The Natural Selection,
2: that's a goodbye. 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 Mm-hmm. I've always said you do, you do look like a worm thief. I've yeah, always said that. Ah, we
0: can't yeah, help I, it. I remember me. <laughs> so, yeah. I just love that extra protein, you know.
1: <laughs> Not to sneak peek anything in our episode, but the worms love the extra protein that you will give them someday too. Hmm,
0: good to know. Good to know.